the sunlight on the garden hardens and grows cold. We cannot cage the minute within its nets of gold. When all is told, we cannot beg for pardon. Our freedom as freelances advances towards its end. The earth compels. Upon it, sonnets and birds descend. And soon, my friend, we shall have no time for dances. Louis McNeice, poet, critic, classicist, translator, was born of West of Ireland parents in Belfast in 1907. The family, shortly afterwards, moved to the historic harbour town of Carrickfergus. His early childhood was spent here, and those formative years were later to become of great importance as a setting and a rooting in the hinterland of his poetic imagination. The unique mixture of a northern child of great sensitivity born into the then and still complex mayhem of northern society, to a family Protestant in religion, not in politics, to a society largely because of its colonial nature, distant and indifferent to a native population, which at that time had little or no social political emancipation. The sunlight on the garden is an examination of all these forces, which bound the poet McNeese to the country island, and the country island to the poet McNeese. The sky was good for flying, defying the church bells and every evil hour and siren and what it tells. The earth compels. We are dying, Egypt, dying, and not expecting pardon, hardened in heart anew, but glad to have sat under thunder and rain with you, and grateful, too, for sunlight on the garden. The first movement, Childhood in Ireland. I was born in Belfast between the mountain and the gantries to the hooting of lost sirens and the clang of trams thence to smoky Carrick in County Antrim where the bottleneck harbour collects the mud which jams the little boats beneath the Norman castle the piers shining with lumps of crystal salt the Scotch quarter was a line of residential houses but the Irish quarter was a slum for the blind and halt. The brook ran yellow from the factory, stinking of chlorine. The yarn mill called its funeral cry at noon. Our lights looked over the loch to the lights of Bangor under the peacock aura of a drowning moon. He referred his whole life back to his childhood, always. Always, Louis, Louis always went back. Headley McNeese, his widow. They would slip into his conversation here and there what happened when he was small, what happened there in Carrickfergus, what happened in Belfast, and what happened actually to him in uh, Marlborough, where he was so extremely happy. Great liberation. I think at the moment when he was writing his autobiography, he went so much down back into his childhood that he wrote the autobiography poem from that way at that time. He also wrote, I think, The Cyclist, <clears throat> 
has to do with Marlborough. So it reawakened in him this tremendous past. Louis really existed every day in his past as well as his present. I, mean, I was taken over minutely over every inch of the ground of every walk, of every childhood game. I was taken round Carrick Fergus. In the beginning was the Irish rain, and marshaled by a pious woman described as a mother's help. I pressed my nose against the steaming nursery window for a glimpse of the funeral procession on its way to the cemetery, the other side of the Hawthorne Hedge. Our life was bounded by this hedge. A granite obelisk would look over it here, and there across the field of corncrakes could be seen a Norman castle, and trains would pass as if to the ends of Ireland, in fact ten miles to Belfast or twelve to Larn. But by and narrow, our damp, cramped acre was our world. The human elements of this world need not be detailed. Guilt, hellfire, Good Friday, the doctor's cough, hurried lamps in the night, melancholia, mongolism, violent sectarian voices. All this sadness and conflict and attrition and frustration were set in this one acre near the smoky town within sound of a tolling bell. Norman walled this town against the country to stop his ears to the yelping of his slave and built a church in the form of a cross, but denoting the list of Christ on the cross in the angle of the nave. I was the rector's son, born to the Anglican order, banned forever from the candles of the Irish poor. The Chichesters knelt in marble at the end of a transept with ruffs about their necks, their portion, sure. I think that was all born in his kitchen of the rectory, where he had a Roman Catholic cook who told them nothing but myths and fairy stories and the country law. And from that, it started Louis' deep feeling for all myth. Started in the kitchen with that Roman Catholic, which was a very rare thing to have a Roman Catholic cook in a rectory. And from there, he went to his father's library. From there, he was allowed to roam in his father's library up to the age of ten. The cook Annie, who was a buxomy, rosy girl from a farm in County Tyrone, was the only Catholic I knew, and therefore my only proof that Catholics were human. She worked very well and fast and filled in her spare time doing Irish crochet work. We would watch the shamrocks and roses growing from her crochet hooks while in a gay, warm voice she would tell us about Five Mile Town, where she came from, and the banshees and the fairies and cows of the Clotter Valley. They had nice rhymes there. Lisnesky for drinking tea, Maguire's Bridge for whiskey, and County Tyrone sounded like a land of content. Now I Rushi, and a part of Prushi. I have travelled spinning all along the Rhine, but in all my ratings and all their things are though your equal, I never could find. 
It was Miss Craig who brought Hale home to me. Being one of the rector's family, I had heard it mentioned before, but it had never been cardinal. Miss Craig made it almost like the Alpha and Omega. Hell flames embroidered her words like Victorian texts. I realized now that I was always doing wrong. Wrong was showing off, being disobedient, being rude, telling stories, doing weekday things, or thinking weekday thoughts on Sunday. I had done so much wrong, I knew I must end in hell. And what was worse, I could imagine it. Sometimes when Miss Craig had jerked me and thumped me into bed, she would look at me grimly and say, Aye, you're here now, but you don't know where you'll be when you wake up. In my childhood trees were green, and there was plenty to be seen. Come back early, or never come. My father made the walls resound. He wore his collar the wrong way round. Come back early, or never come. My mother wore a yellow dress, gently, gently, gentleness. Come back early, or never come. God, I do not want to have any dreams. I am going to sleep. Do not let me have any dreams. And if I am going to have dreams, do not let, let me sleep, God. Please, I will do anything if you'll only keep me awake. But I always went to sleep all the same. One night I woke up and yelled. My father came up from downstairs. There was light in his voice. He told me that nothing would hurt me. I felt quite safe when he had gone. But next morning Miss Craig was very angry. My father had forgotten to go down again to the study and left the lamp burning there all night. I was a very wicked boy and might have burnt the church down. When I was five, the black dreams came. Nothing after was quite the same. Come back early or never come. The dark was talking to the dead. The lamp was dark beside my bed. Come back early or never come. When I woke, they did not care. Nobody... Nobody was there. Come back early or never come. There were also the terrors of the church. The church was cruciform, and the rectory pew, being the front pew of the nave, looked out onto the space where the chancel and the nave and the two transepts met. The transept on our left was on a higher level and was reached by a short flight of steps, the end wall of which was occupied by a huge Elizabethan monument to the Chichester family who had then been the power in the land. The father and mother, who were each very large, knelt under an arch opposite each other, praying. Below them, much smaller, was a Chichester brother who had been beheaded by the rebels and between them, like a roll of suet pudding on a little marble cushion, was a little marble baby. None of these marble people worried me at all. What I disliked were the things that hung high up on the wall on either side of the monument's narrower top. A decayed coat of mail, a couple of old weapons, a helmet. I could not see the coat of mail when I was sitting, thanks to the solid front of the firm pew. But whenever I got up, there it would be, older and older, and deader and deader, yet somehow not quite dead enough.
When my silent terror cried, nobody, nobody replied, come back early or never come. I got up, the chilly sun saw me walk away alone, come back early or never come. Our best antidote to these terrors and depressions was the gardener Archie, in whose presence everything was merry. My father did not think of him in that way, as Archie, whose professional pride was easily wounded, would sometimes absent himself for weeks out of pique. But for us, nothing that Archie could do was wrong, and he cast a warm glow upon everything he touched. We would wait anxiously in the morning for him to appear. He rarely turned up before noon because of his rheumatism, and whenever we would escape from Miss Craig, we would encircle him in the garden and listen to him, as my father called it, romancing. For Archie, though he could neither read nor write, was a great orangeman and played a flute in the 12th of July procession. Until, that is, his rheumatism made him unable to march. The orange lily was his fitting emblem, for he took a childlike delight in the gaudy and was naturally histrionic, and would sometimes turn up in the morning with a small Union Jack in his cap, level his blackthorn stick at a crow, sight along it, and pull an imaginary trigger. Then say, I'm a Frenchman, and stand to attention and salute. He had snow-white hair and beautiful pure blue eyes, and on his gnarled and abrazed finger he wore an imitation gold ring. He was not able to read or write. He did odd jobs on gentlemen's places, cutting the hedge or hoeing the drive with the smile of a saint, with the pride of a feudal chief. For he was not quite all there. Crippled by rheumatism, by the time his hair was white, he would reach the garden by twelve, his legs in soiled putties, a clay pipe in his teeth, a tiny flag in his cap, a white cat behind him, and his eyes a cornflower blue. He believed in God, the good fellow up there, and he used a simile of Homer, watching the falling leaves, and every year he waited for the 12th of July, cherishing his sash and his fife for the carnival of banners and drums. He was always claiming but never obtaining his old age pension, for he did not know his age. But he took a pride in the job. He kept a bowl of cold tea in the crotch of a tree always enjoyed his food and enjoyed honing the scythe and making the potato drills and putting the pea sticks in and enjoyed the noise of the corn crake and the early hawthorn hedge peppered black and green and the cut grass dancing in the air happy as the day was long Till his last sickness took him, and he could not leave his house, and his eyes lost their colour, and he sat by the little range with a finch in a cage and a framed certificate of admission into the orange order, and his speech began to wander, and memory ebbed, leaving upon the shore odd shells and heads of wreck, and his soul went out on the ebbing tide in a trim boat to find the walls of Derry or the land of the ever-young
We rarely went into the Irish quarter, and I used to hold my breath till I got through it. There was a dense smell of poverty as of soot mixed with porter, mixed with cheap fat frying, mixed with festering scabs and rags that never had been washed. Many of the houses were mere cottages, and you looked down over the half-door into a room below the level of the street. All was dark, but the glow of a grate might show up a mangy cat or a quizzical, wrinkled face. The thatch on the roofs came to down within five feet of the street, was sometimes mottled with grass or moss, was usually dripping. And in the Irish Quarter West, there was a place which I knew was bad, a public house with great wide windows of opaque, decorated glass, out of which came randy voices and clinks and swear words, and a smell that was stronger than cheese, and a mellow yellow light at night that fell on the gutter like a benison. I wish I was in Dublin and sitting on the grass in my right hand a jug of punch and on my knee a I'd call for liquor freely and I'd pay before I'd go and I'd roll her in me arms, let the wind blow high or low. In the spring, I committed a murder. Down in the hedge by the bottom walk in the garden, where my mother used to walk with my sister, there was a bird's nest. I could hear the little birds cheeping, but the nest was too high for me to see into it, so when no one was around, I reached up for it, and it capsized. I cannot remember seeing the nestlings fall out, when I came past there again, there they were, hanging in the hedge, little naked corpses, terrible, silent. I did not let on for years, but I avoided the bottom walk. It all began so easy, with bricks upon the floor, building motley houses and knocking down your houses, and always building more. The doll was called Christina. Her underwear was lace. She smiled while you dressed her, and when you then undressed her, she kept a smiling face. Until the day she tumbled and broke herself in two, and her legs and arms were hollow, and her yellow head was hollow behind her eyes of blue. He went to bed with a lady somewhere seen before. He heard the name Christina, and suddenly saw Christina dead on the nursery floor. Trains came threading through my dozing childhood, gentle murmurs nosing through a summery quietude, drawing in and out, in and out, their smoky ribbons, parting now and then, and launching full-rigged galleons, and scrolls of smoke that hung in a shifting epitaph. Then distantly the noise declined like a descending graph, sliding downhill gently to the bottom of the distance, for now all things are there that all were here once. And so we hardly noticed when the metal murmur came, but it brought us assurance and comfort all the same, and in the early night they soothed us to sleep, and the chain of the rolling wheels bound us in deep, till all was broken by that menace from the sea the steel bosom siren calling bitterly.
The war came, and a huge camp of soldiers grew from the ground in sight of our house, with long dummies hanging from divots for bayonet practice, and the sentry's challenge echoing all day long. A Yorkshire terrier ran in and out by the gate lodge, barred to civilians, yapping as if taking a front. Marching at ease and singing, Who Killed Cock Robin? The troops went out by the lodge and off to the front. The steamer was camouflaged that took me to England, sweat and khaki in the Carlisle train. I thought that the war would last forever and sugar be always rationed and that never again would the weekly papers not have photos of sandbags and my governess not make bandages from moss, and people not have maps above the fireplace with flags on pins moving across and across. Across the hawthorn hedge, the noise of bugles, flares across the night. Somewhere on the loch was a prison ship for Germans, a cage across their sight. I went to school in Dorset, the world of parents contracted into a puppet world of sons. Far from the mill girls, the smell of porter, the salt mines, and the soldiers with their guns. The second movement, Growing Young with Ireland. In one sense, when Rebmeest left Ireland to continue his studies in England in his early teens, he left for good. From that point on, it seemed inevitable that he would earn his living on foreign shores. But in a more important sense, he never left. The sights and sounds, the emotions and expressions of his childhood, indelibly Irish as they were, were always to stay with him. Even what later he came to regard as his most serious volume of poetry, Poems, 1935, the country he felt rooted to had already grown in his imagination and was to manifest itself in verse. His frequent visits to the north and the west, his time and company spent in Dublin, each experience was memorized and recorded in many poems, straightforward in approach, yet incisive and investigative in terms of experience and exploration. The small cobbled towns, the ceaseless washes of green and gold, the sky's innumerable nuances of color and mood, the people always inventive and separate in their ways. Into these his pen was to continually dip. In the beginning, it was all appreciative, eager, celebratory, a man rediscovering and enthusiastic about his place. Peering into your stout, you see a past of lazy beds, a liner moving west, leaving the husk of home, her white wake lashing round your pimpled haycocks. Drink up, Rip MacWinkle, the night is old. Where can you find a fire that burns and gives no warmth? Where is the tall ship that chose to run on a rock? Where are there more fish than ever filled the ocean? Where can you find a clock that strikes when it has stopped? Oh, poverty is the fire that burns and gives no warmth. 
My youth is a tall ship that chose to run on a rock. Men yet unborn could more than fill the ocean, and death is the black clock that strikes when it has stopped. My glass is low, and I lack money to fill it. I gaze on the black dregs and the yellow scum, and the night is old, and a night bird calls me away to what now is merely mine, and soon will be no one's home. They're back again. Back for his holiday from across the water, he fishes with spinners or a rubber eel, fishes for mackerel or pollock, but also for something that he remembers now more by the feel of the jigging line than by how it looked when landed. If it was ever landed, sitting beside his father, whose eyes are smoured with distance, he talks of crops and weather, but would prefer to talk of something for which he has no words, till the talk stops and the fire inside and the rain outside are silent, and his thoughts return to the city as he fingers his city tie, thinking he has made good, gone up in the world on the whole, were it not for something intuited perhaps, though never understood, which flitted through this room around his cradle. So on his last day, walking beside his brother, whose dog, like a black thought, streaks through ditch and fence, rounding up sheep, he sees in his brother a sudden something, an oaf, but an oaf with dignity, and the sense that it is a fine day if it rains only a little. Writing in the strings are false, his autobiography. McNeese wrote, Today I am so at home in Dublin, more than any other city, that I feel it has always been familiar to me. But as with Belfast, it took me years to penetrate its outer ugliness and doorness. So with Dublin, it took me years to see through its soft charm to its bitter, pricky kernel, which I quite like too. Grey brick upon brick, declamatory bronze on sombre pedestals, O'Connell, Grattan, Moore, and the brewery tugs and the swans on the balustraded stream, and the bare bones of a fanlight over a hungry door, and the air soft on the cheek, and porter running from the taps with a head of yellow cream, and Nelson on his pillar watching his world collapse. But one thirty in the morning, without a bit of warning, Earl Nelson took a powder and he blew. Oh, at last the Irish nation had Parnell and higher station. That filled out Admiral Nelson Tudaloo. This was never my town. I was not born, nor bred, nor schooled here, and she will not have me alive or dead, but yet she holds my mind with her seedy elegance with her gentle veils of rain, and all her ghosts that walk, and all that hide behind her Georgian facades. The cat calls and the pain, the glamour of her squalor, the bravado of her talk. I'd like to take you to a part of Dublin that is probably not in any guidebook. It is a uh, on one side. my right? old one, your old one, will you come to the waxy's doggle? To the your old one, to my old one, sure I haven't got so far. The lights jig in the river with a concertina movement. When the sun comes up in the morning like barley sugar on the water, 
and the mist on the Wicklow Hills is close, as close as the peasantry were to the landlord, as the Irish to the Anglo-Irish, as the killer is close one moment to the man he kills, or as the moment itself is close to the next moment. She is not an Irish town, and she is not English, historic with guns and vermin, and the cold renown of a fragment of church Latin of an oratorical phrase. But, oh, the days are soft, soft enough to forget the lesson better learnt, the bullet on the wet streets, the crooked deal, the steel behind the laugh, the four courts burnt. No fighted hum, nor battle drum, did sound its red tattoo, but the Angelus bells o'er the Liffey swell rang out through the foggy Fort of the Dane, garrison of the Saxon, Augustan capital of a Gaelic nation, appropriating all the alien brought, you give me time for thought, and by a juggler's trick you poise the toppling hour. O oh, grayness run to flower, grey stone, grey water, and brick upon grey brick. <laughs> Part 3, Growing Old with Ireland. The 1930s, even from this relatively recent standpoint in history, were a decade of indelible significance for the world. The ten years born in the relative calm of the emerging and remembering nations of Europe were to go out in the throes of the greatest war in history. In between, the twin growths of fascism and socialism across Europe were eventually to lock in battle on the bloody plains of Spain in civil war. McNeese, as one of the poets of the 30s, as poetic hindsight eventually named them, was left idealistic, socially conscious, hopeful, and eventually to be shattered into despair, as were most of his generation. Names like Auden, Spender, De Lewis, Orwell, Barker, McNeese. Towards Ireland, too, his 30s conscience was to move from celebration to criticism, to make bald statement of social comment and insistence. Oh, the slums of Dublin fermenting with children. Wander far and near. The growing years are a cruel squadron, and poverty is a rusty cauldron. Wander near and far. The youths play cards by the broken fanlight. Wander far and near. The jack looks greasy in the sunlight, as hands will fumble in the moonlight. Wander near and far. And the grown man must play the horses. Wander far and near. Some do better on different courses, but the black will remain to draw the hearses. Wander near and far. The bowsy in his second childhood. Wander far and near. Thumbs his pipe of peace and briarwood, but lacks a light to relight his manhood. Wander near and far. Near and far, far and near. The street lamp winks, the mutes are here. Above the steeple hangs a star so near and far. Thank you.
It's no go the merry-go-round, it's no go the rickshaw. All we want is a limousine and a ticket for the peep show. Their knickers are made of crepe to sheen, their shoes are made of python. Their halls are lined with tiger rugs and their walls with heads of bison. John MacDonald found a corpse, put it under the sofa, waited till it came to life and hit it with a poker, sold its eyes for souvenirs, sold its blood for whiskey, kept its bones for dumbbells to use when he was fifty. It's no go the yogi man, it's no go Blavatsky. All we want is a bank balance and a bit of skirt in a taxi. Annie MacDougall went to milk, caught her foot in the heather, woke to hear a dance record playing of old Vienna. It's no go your maiden heads, it's no go your culture. All we want is a Dunlop tire and the devil mend the puncture. The Laird of Phelps spent Hogmanay, declaring he was sober, counted his feet to prove the fact and found he had one foot over. Mrs Carmichael had her fifth, looked at the job of the repulsion, said to the midwife, take it away, and threw with overproduction. It's no go the gossip column, it's no go the Cayley. All we want is a mother's help and a sugar stick for the baby. <laughs> Willie Murray cut his thumb, couldn't count the damage, took the hide of an Ayrshire cow and used it for a bandage. His brother caught 300 cran when the seas were lavish, threw the bleeders back in the sea and went upon the parish. It's no go the herring board, it's no go the Bible. All we want is a packet of fags when our hands are idle. It's no go the picture palace, it's no go the stadium. It's no go the country cot with a pot of pink geraniums. It's no go the government grants, it's no go the elections. Sit on your ass for 50 years and hang your hat on a pension. It's no go my honey love, it's no go my poppet. Work your hands from day to day, the winds will blow the profit. The glass is falling hour by hour, the glass will fall forever. But if you break the bloody glass, you won't hold up the weather. He was very aware of the new sort of executive element that was growing up, which seemed to him to have very little to do with what Ireland was about. The materialism of Ireland, which he could see coming. The neutral island facing the Atlantic, the neutral island in the heart of man, are bitterly soft reminders of the beginnings that ended before the end began. Look into your heart, you will find the county Sligo, a knock-naray with for navel a cairn of stones. You will find the shadow and sheen of a moleskin mountain and the litter of chronicles and bones. Look into your heart, you will find fermenting rivers, intricacies of gloom and glint, you will find such ducats of dream and great doubloons of ceremony as nobody today would mint. But then look eastward from your heart. There bulks a continent, close, dark as archetypal sin, while to the west, off your own shores, the mackerel are fat on the flesh of your kin. Era's stubborn neutrality, as my British history book dubbed it, recalled in that poem. Late in 1938, McNeese began a long poem called Autumn Journal, a concise exploration of biography, society and the human condition as he saw it, then in those last days before World War. Section 16 of that poem turned an angry and microscopic eye on the island that he found then, 
unable to edge out of the shadow of the past and fearful of the light of the future. Inward, impotent, inbred, seeking a sign. Dublin Castle, the Viceregal Ball, the embassies of Europe, hatred scribbled on a wall, jails and revolvers. And I remember when I was little, the fear bandied among the servants that casement would land at the pier with a sword and a horde of rebels. And how we used to expect at a later date, when the wind blew from the west, the noise of shooting starting in the evening at eight in Belfast in the York Street district. And the voodoo of the orange bands drawing an iron net through darkest Ulster, flailing the limbo lands, the linen mills, the long wet grass, the ragged hawthorn. And one red black with the other red white, his hope the other man's damnation. Up the rebels. To hell with the Pope. And God save, as you prefer, the King or Ireland. land of scholars and saints. Scholars and saints, my eye. The land of ambush, purblind manifestos, never-ending complaints, the born martyr and the gallant ninny, the grocer drunk with the drum, the landowner shot in his bed, the angry voices piercing the broken fanlight in the slum, the shawled woman weeping at the garish altar. Kathleen Nahulahan. must a country like a ship or a car be always female mother or sweetheart? A woman passing by, we did but see her passing, passing like a patch of sun on the rainy hill. Yet we love her forever and hate our neighbour, and each one in his will binds his heirs to continuance of hatred. Drums on the haycock. Drums on the harvest. Black drums in the night shaking the windows. King William is riding his white horse back to the boyne on the banner. Thousands of banners. Thousands of white horses. Thousands of Williams waving thousands of swords and ready to fight till the blue sea turns to orient. Such was my country, and I thought I was well out of it, educated and domiciled in England. Yet her name keeps ringing like a bell in an underwater belfry. Why do we like being Irish? Partly because it gives us a hold on the sentimental English as members of a world that never was, baptised with fairy water. And partly because Ireland is small enough to be still thought of with a family feeling. And because the waves are rough that split her from a more commercial culture. And because one feel, feels that here, at least, one can do local work which is not at the world's mercy. And that on this tiny stage with luck, a man might see the end of one particular action. It is self-deception, of course. There is no immunity in this island either. A cart that is drawn by somebody else's horse and carrying goods to somebody else's market, the bonds and the turnip sack, the sniper from the roof, Griffith, Connolly, Collins, what have they brought us? Take it down from the vast Irish papers. It's the flag we Ourselves alone. Let the round tower stand aloof in a world of bursting mortar. Let the school children fumble their sums in a half-dead language. Let the censor be busy on the books, pull down the Georgian slums, let the games be played in Gaelic. Let them grow beet sugar, let them build a factory in every hamlet. Let them pigeonhole the souls of the killed into sheep and goats, patriots and traitors. And the North... 
When I was a boy, is still the North, veneered with the grime of Glasgow, thousands of men whom nobody will employ, standing at the corners, coughing, and the street children playing on the wet pavement, hopscotch or marbles. And each rich family boasts a sagging tennis net on a spongy lawn beside a dripping shrubbery. The smoking chimneys hint at prosperity round the corner, but they make their Ulster linen from foreign lint, and the money that comes in goes out to make more money. A city built upon mud. A culture built upon profit. Free speech nipped in the bud. A minority always guilty. Why should I want to go back to you, Ireland, my Ireland? The blots on the page are so black they cannot be covered with shamrock. I hate your grandiose airs, your sob stuff, your laugh and your swagger, your assumption that everyone cares who is the king of your castle. Castles are out of date, the tide flows round, the children's sandy fancy. Put up your flag, you like it is too late to save your soul with bunting. Odi atque amo. Shall we cut this name on tree with rusty dagger? Her mountains are still blue, her rivers flow, bubbling over the boulders. She is both a bore and a bitch. Better close the horizon. Send her no more fantasy, no more longings which are under a fatal tariff. For common sense is the vogue, and she gives her children neither sense nor money who slouch round the world with a gesture and a brogue and a faggot of useless memories. Coda, the moment of afterthought, the ending but not quite, the finalizing of the final statement. This remarkable poem of the same name introduces the last section of this program, Coda. Maybe we knew each other better when the night was young and unrepeated and the moon stood still over Jericho. So much for the past. In the present there are moments caught between heartbeats when maybe we know each other better. But what is that clinking in the darkness? Maybe we shall know each other better when the tunnels meet beneath the mountain. Some of his best poems were a distillation of the Irish experience. We begin with the poem, Snow. The room was suddenly rich, and the great bay window was spawning snow and pink roses against it, soundlessly collateral and incompatible. World is suddener than we fancy it. World is crazier and more of it than we think, incorrigibly plural. I peel and portion a tangerine and spit the pips and feel the drunkenness of things being various. And the fire flames with a bubbling sound, for world is more spiteful and gay than one supposes, on the tongue, on the eyes, on the ears, in the palms of one's hands. There is more than glass between the snow and the huge roses. Death of an Old Lady. This is a short poem about an old lady dying in a large house up a hill above Belfast Loch in Northern Ireland. Uh, the loch, of course, 
down which the Titanic sailed on her maiden voyage. Death of an Old Lady. At five in the morning, there were grave voices calling three times through the dank fields. The ground fell away beyond the voices forty long years to the wrinkled loch that had given a child one shining glimpse of a boat so big it was named Titanic. Named or called, for a name is a call, chipyard voices at five in the morning, as now for this old tired lady who sails towards her own iceberg calm and slow, we hardly hear the screws, we hardly can think her back her fourscore years. They called and ceased. Later the night nurse handed over. The day went down to the sea in a ship. It was grey April. The daffodils in her garden waited to make her a wreath. The iceberg waited. At eight in the evening, the ship went down. Louis McNeese died in September 1963 in his mid-fifties. The volume of work he left was immense. The reputation of his work, ranging over a period from the 20s to the 60s, is now firmly assured. A love poet of immense sensitivity and charm, a social historian and commentator that deserve an epitaph not often applied to him, war poet, a child of the classics. His translations and dramas alone would constitute an impressive body of work. It all began in a rectory overlooking the loch down which the Titanic had sailed in Carrickfergus. close friend and comrade northern poet W.R. Rogers wrote this epitaph for him. Only a green hill, the man with a spade, opening the old account books of earth and writing paid. Under the highly improbable sky, needlessly blue, he piles the cold clay. It is all you might say, so dead true to life. The meek clay turning the other cheek to the clap of the spade waits to inherit the earth of the man whom it has made, that he made it that made him. He put the word on it that gave life and limb. Now to speak of an end is to begin. <laughs> 